Turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 14. We're continuing, of course, our study of the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah and the Savior. In this passage, of course, we continue seeing the power of Jesus Christ. And in this section, we're going to see five miracles done by Jesus. And uh, he indeed is the Messiah and the Savior. Uh, this is a famous passage. We always talk about Jesus walking on the water. And that's what, you know, everybody says, well, that's a famous passage. Well, uh, we, we just saw, and, and this is what's going to be unusual. We just saw where the passage where it says Jesus fed how many? said 5,000, but we already know that when we studied the passage, it wasn't 5,000. It was 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, so he could have fed uh, 20,000 people. Well, this passage, everybody says, is Jesus walking on the water, but we're going to find out it's not just Jesus walking on the water. There are going to be four other miracles. In fact, as we go through it, we're going to see four more miracles in this story. So there's some great things here. We'll see it as we go through it. Well, Many of you know about the Mississippi River. I grew up in Mississippi, and I actually lived in Vicksburg for a while, and then I lived in Cleveland, which is where Delta State, where I went to college, and that's not very, not very far from the river. river is huge, and uh, as a boy, we'd sometimes go, and we'd look at the Mississippi River. When I went to Dallas, uh, people talked about the Trinity River. They said, you know, the Trinity River's big. I said, no, the Trinity River's not very big. I mean, I count to the Mississippi. I'm not fond of water. Most of you know that. Uh, baptism is a big deal for me. But so... Uh, uh, one time, I have this friend, his name is Mike Ray, and he listens all the time. So, Mike, this is for you. He, he grew up in Vicksburg. He coached with me or was with me at Mississippi State. So, one time, he said, let's go, let's go back to Vicksburg. And then, at Vicksburg, he said, I have a friend that's got a boat. Let's get, let's get on the Mississippi River in a boat. And, you know, you already know that I would say, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But I said, okay, I will. And it was, it was a little boat, and we were fine. Everything was fine until a barge came by. And this big old barge came by, and it's moving pretty slow, but this big wake. And suddenly, after the boat began to go up and down and up and down, and I mean, I got so scared. I mean, it, we're talking about the boat was like way up, and we were, it was everything we could do to stay in the boat. I thought to myself, boy, if I ever get out of this, I will never get back on anything like this. I was really afraid. Well, well this morning, we're going to look at this passage. And these men are sailors. I mean, uh, the, uh, fishermen, they, they, they get on the boat all the time on the Sea of Galilee. And he tells them to get on the boat. And they get such a terrible storm. That's probably, one, probably the worst storm they ever experienced. In fact, they're trying to go across a little place that's probably not even seven miles across. Should take them two, two and a half hours. They've been there nine hours and they're not even halfway across. We'll see it as we go through the passage. And right in the midst of this storm, Jesus comes, in the midst of the storm, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. You know, one of the things that I think about this is right in the middle of the trials of life and the storms of life, guess who's there? Jesus is always there, some great things. Well, this morning, we're at the turning point. We've been at the turning point the last three or four weeks at the fact that Jesus no longer is now declaring that he is the king of the Jews. He's not going to the Jewish people and announcing that he's seen the rejection. The religious leaders rejected him, and as a whole, his hometown has rejected him, and then other people have rejected him. And so it's a change, and he's now beginning to bring his disciples together and teaching them. And that's what we're going to see this morning. This is going to be a test is what he's doing to them. Last time we saw that he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, so it could have been as close to 20,000 people, with five loaves, five little crackers, and two fish. They were more like sardines. And he took those two things, and he fed 20,000 people. 
We're going to see in our passage that he's going to then send his disciples away and he's going to send the people away. Why? What's going on? Well, let me break down the passage for you this morning. We're going to see him sending the people away. That's in verses 22 and 23. Then we're going to see him walking on the water. That's the famous thing. And then we're going to see this healing. That's toward the very end. And there's some great things there. So as we look at these events, we see Jesus as our Messiah and as our Savior. But we also see him as God. Because you're going to, we're going to see the response of the disciples when he walked on the water and did what he does. They worshipped him. And we'll see, see it as we get into it. Well, let's see. He sends away the people. Now, I want you to notice, look at verse 22 of Matthew 14. It says, immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, before we get to that, if you notice, just go back just a few verses. This is where he got everybody to sit down in groups of 50 or 100, and he took the five loaves and two fish, and he fed the people. And in verse 21, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. Now, it says here that he sent the disciples away told them to get in a boat and go on ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee, and then he told the crowd to leave. Why would he do that? Well, if, hold your place for just a second. What I want you to do is I want you to turn to John chapter 6. Just flip to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and get over to John chapter 6, and I want you to see what happened. John chapter 6, why he does that. I hope you're all there, John chapter 6, to get the answer. Look at verse 13. So they gathered them up. This is, this is when he had fed everybody. If they had gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that were left over those who had eaten. So I want you to know this is the same passage, just from the Gospel of John. Therefore, when the people saw the sign that he had performed, what was the sign? He took five loaves, two fish, and fed 20,000 people. They said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, that sounds good. That sounds good. But then we go on in verse 15, and here's what it says. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He found out. He, the crowd wanted to make him a king by force. Listen, this isn't saying we believe as the Messiah and the Savior and we're trusting him as the king of Israel and the Savior of the world. They're saying this is the guy that can whip the Romans. We don't like the Romans. We don't like being controlled by the Romans. This is the guy that can feed us. We think he could be the king to, to wipe out the Romans. In fact, if you look further over in verse 26 of John chapter 6, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you just saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He said, you've seen all this. You've seen they wanted to make Jesus king for the wrong reason. And you know what he did? He said, everybody got to go. Thank you, for, thank you for coming. And he got his guys, and he got them in a boat, and they, he said, go to the other side. And he told the people to leave. Then he went up by himself. See, they wanted to make him the king for the wrong reason. And we must understand who Jesus is. Now, the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the king, and he is the king of the Jews, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But we also remember that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, that Jesus came as the one who died and rose again and to give the gift of eternal life simply by faith. And the motives of the people in John chapter 6, and if you want to go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 14, the motive of the people was, we're not looking for him as our savior. We just want somebody to whip the Romans and get them so that we can be free people. That's what they were really wanting. And Jesus knew that. So look what happens. Go back to Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse 22. Immediately, 
immediately after he fed everybody, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now, immediately after this happened, now they're going to go to a place called Gennesaret. They're right around Basidia, and, and he's going to send them on a seven-mile trip. Let me show you this. This is sort of the, 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 this is the Sea of Galilee. Remember, this is, um, this is Cana of Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up. This is where he did his first two miracles. This Capernaum is his headquarters. We know that he's, there's Gennesaret. There's Mary Magdalene. That's where she was from. He came way down here at this place called Gadarenes, which is where the, that guy was, had all those demons in him and all the pigs ran down. And this is where they've been. They've been in this region. We think that the feeding of the 5,000 took place somewhere right there. He says, get into the boat and go to the other side. They're actually going to go over here. Now, look, it's not a very far. You know, sometimes they'll leave here and go here. That's a long way. This is only six or seven miles. In fact, it may not even be quite that long. And normally, they would be able to make that trip in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. So it's darker. It's the end of the day. He says, get in the boat, and y'all get on across. Let's just pretend it's about six o'clock in the evening when they get into the boat. They should expect to get to the other side by 738 o'clock. That's what they're thinking. So he sends them away. And look what happened, though. Why did he want them away from there? Well, I think two things. One, he wanted to remove them from the situation because the people are wanting to make him king by force. And second, he has a test for them. He has a test for them. He wants them to trust him. So he already tested him. You remember how he tested him? They said to Jesus, all these big people, all these people are here, these 5,000 men and all the women and children, they looked at Jesus and said, send them away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. That was a test right there. He's going to test them now. He said, get in the boat, go to the other side. They figured, you know, Gennesaret is not very far away. We can be there in a couple of hours. Jesus may have implied to them that I will follow after you soon. So look what happened. Immediately, verse 22, he made the disciples get in the boat, go ahead of them to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And he sent, after sending the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, it's already dark. It's late in the evening. His disciples are in a boat going across the Sea of uh, Galilee. He's up on a mountain by himself, and it stresses, in the way the original language is written here, it's stressing that he's by himself. We already know that from the Gospel of Mark and some other places, Jesus spent a lot of times that he would get by himself to talk to the Heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus kept as a priority. He met, kept the priority of spending time talking to his Heavenly Father. Now, he's up on the top of the mountain praying, talking to the Father. I wonder what he's talking about. I wonder what he's praying about. You know what I think it is? I think it's about the guys in the boat that's going across the sea because he knows what's going on. I want you to think about your relationship with your heavenly Father. How often do you get alone? Think about this. We must maintain our relationship with our heavenly Father. Do you have a time? in which every day you try to get by yourself with the Lord, whether you just read the scripture, whether you have what we call a quiet time, whether you read a certain section, whether you write out in a little thing, whether you're actually studying a passage. Every day, each of us in this room need time alone with our Savior. It's easy to say, oh, I'm just too busy and I can't get up that early. It's too early. And then by the time you get, you get going another day, you can't do that. And then when you get home at night, you say, oh, I'm... I'm just too tired to do this. 
Let me tell you, I made a decision a long time ago, and this is just me now. You've got to make your own decision. But I have to do it in the mornings because once my day starts, I, I don't have time just to sit down and have my quiet time in that sense. I've got other things, and I'm too tired at night. I'm just, I get up real early, so I get to the church, and, and I have my time alone. You need a time alone every day. You know, make that decision. Say, I'm going to set a time. I have to get up a little, 30 minutes. And don't start with something gigantic. Start and say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes. I'm going to get up and I'm going to spend 15 minutes reading, praying, and spending time with my Heavenly Father. A guy named Leonard Ravenhill wrote this. He said, the church has many organizers but few agonizers. There are many who pay but few who pray. There are many wrestlers but few wrestlers. There are many who are playing but few who are praying. When we think of the ministry of Christ, we always think of his death and resurrection. We do. But sometimes we fail to remember that he spent a lot of time talking to his heavenly father while he was on the earth because he came to represent the heavenly father. And you know what he does for us? You know what he's doing for us right now? Where is Jesus? Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the father, right? What's he doing for us? You know what he's doing? Two things. You know what he's doing? He's praying. He's our intercessor and our advocate. And Hebrews chapter 7, 25 says he lives forever to make intercession for us. That means he's our go-between. That means when we lift up a prayer request, when we lift up anything, he is our intercessor. He's the go-between between man and the Father, the Heavenly Father. He is also an advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says that whenever we sin and we confess our sin, he is our advocate. He is the one that basically keeps us back at the fellowship and gives us forgiveness. So that's what he does. He is the intercessor and the advocate. Now, let's think about the disciples, okay? Verse 23, it says, Again, he sent the crowds away, went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, now it's already dark, he was there alone. But, look at verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, we're going to see what we call the walking on the water. Okay, when it says the boat, uh, some of the uh, manuscripts actually say uh, he was mini stadia. He, he was about, they were about three miles out. So they're about halfway across. In fact, the Gospel of John says when they were halfway across, trying to get across the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm. The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The word battered means to be harassed. I mean, there's a picture of the boat being tossed. Listen, I, I've, I've been in a little boat going up and down. I did not like that at all, okay? This is, this is, a, bigger, this is a bigger boat. This is a fishing boat, and they've got a bunch of guys on there, but the, but the wind is so hard and contrary. In fact, uh, the gospel of, uh, gospel of Mark says they were straining at the oars. You know, sometimes the, the wind blew them across, but sometimes they didn't have enough wind. This storm is so bad, they've got their oars out, and they're trying to grow across, and they can't get across. In fact, we're going to see it in just a minute. They left. Let's just say they left close to 6 o'clock. Do you know what time it is right now when Jesus comes walking on the water? It's around 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. They've been out there for 9 or 10 hours. It should have taken them an hour and a half, maybe two hours to go that little distance, and they have, they're not even halfway. Now, what do you think they're thinking? You know what, you know what they're thinking? Where is Jesus? You know, why did he tell us to get in the boat? I mean, wh wh where is he when we need him? He should be here right now. And, and that's sometimes we think that. In the midst of trials, we say, where is he? But guess what? He's always there. He's always li he lives forever to make what? 
intercession for us. So the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So they've been out there nine hours, and they are at least nine hours. Could be 10 or 11 hours they've been trying to make it across. And they they keep saying to themselves, what's the deal? Why can't we make it? It's normally a two-hour trip. The wind is so bad, we're rowing as hard as we can. In fact, the Gospel of Mark says they were digging into the waves, and, and they couldn't move. And so they're stuck. Now, it's, it's a storm and a lot of wind. And suddenly they look up and they see somebody walking across the water. Now, can you picture this? They're walking across the water. And, some, you know, sometimes in our trials in life, we, we're mad, we're angry, we're saying, what's going on? In fact, let me just say this. I know this, that some of you right now in your life, you're in a boat in the middle of the water in a bad storm. There are things happening in your lives that you don't even understand. You wish they weren't happening. You say to yourself, Lord, why is this happening to me? And, and you're in the midst of a storm. And that happens in all of our lives. And sometimes they seem longer than others. Sometimes you think, are we going to ever get across the Sea of Galilee and get to the other side? God allows us to go through trials so we'll trust him. Because this is what he wants. This is a test. He wants them to trust him. Now, these guys are veterans. They're veterans. There's no telling how many times that they had been in a storm on the Sea of Galilee because they were fishermen. And yet this one is so bad, they can't even move, and they look up, and they see someone walking on the water. Look, it says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, by the way, this is the first of five miracles. I want you to see them. We're going to see five miracles in this passage. He's walking on the water. And by the way... um, I've had liberals, you read a book, and this is a liberal who doesn't believe anything, and he says, Jesus didn't actually walk on the water. He was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he waved at them out while they were on the water. Well, he, he's still going to have to get in the boat somehow, right? Okay, I get figured that one. But the, the Greek doesn't say by the sea. It actually says upon the sea. In fact, in the Greek, it actually says on top of. So Jesus is walking on the water. It's an amazing thing. And by the way, he, he, he created it. He created everything. He can do anything. So look what happens. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. Now, they were frightened. They were afraid. Why? Because they were confused and troubled and bothered. They've been out there for nine hours. Nothing's gone right. It's a terrible storm. Wind blowing everywhere. Rain blowing everywhere. And they look up and they see him. And they figure it's him because it looks like him. But they think maybe it's a ghost. The the Greek word there is phantasma, which means they they thought it was some kind of spirit. They they didn't know, they didn't figure it was him. They thought, what could that be? And that's why one of the reasons they're so afraid. It says it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. You know, when we don't understand things, we get afraid. So look what Jesus says. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. He calms their fears. He's always there to come our fears. Listen, in the midst of the storms, we don't have to be afraid. In the midst of the trials and the problems and the ups and downs of life, we don't have to be afraid. In fact, he says, take courage. Take courage. Actually, take courage means be cheerful. Now, in the midst of the storm, he says, I want you to be cheerful. <laughs> we could say, yeah, that's easy for you to say. But that's exactly what he says. Take courage. Be cheerful. I am here. Do not be afraid. Now, Peter's the man. 
We've already talked about the apostles, and we talked about Peter and James and Andrew and John and, and Philip and Bartholomew and all the guys. And we always say that Peter's sort of the leader. And sometimes Peter says the right thing, sometimes Peter says the wrong thing. Sometimes Peter does the right thing, sometimes Peter does the wrong thing. It reminds us of us. You know, and, and so Peter is a leader. And so when Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me, Peter said to him, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. By the way, it's a first class if in Greek, which means if and is true. So he wasn't saying if it's you and I don't know if it's you. He's actually saying if and is true, it's you. And he didn't say, let me come onto the water. He said, command me to come to you on the water. The word command there means to empower. He's actually saying, give me the power to walk to you on the water. Would you do it? Would you do it in the midst of that storm? You're, you're dead tired. Your arms are worn out because you've tried to row. You've been there for nine hours. You see as Jesus. Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's me. In fact, one of the other gospels says that he is walking as if to go past them. It's not like he's stopping there. It's like they're stuck and he's going, y'all doing okay? How y'all doing? That's almost what it's like. And so he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And so Peter says, if it's you, command me, empower me to come to you. Notice what he says, to come to you on the water. And so we're going to see a second miracle. And then Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. There it is. That's our second miracle. So we already seen one. Jesus walking on water. Now Peter's walking on the water. How do you think he felt? How do you think it was? And can you imagine this? That you step on water and it doesn't go down? And you can walk on the, t- you can walk on the water? I mean, the closest, I, I, I don't like water, but I did water ski once. And, and, you know, I, I got up, and, and that thing is, I'm just going along the top of the water, and I think, this is amazing, because I don't even like water, and I'm on top of it. You know, it's a pretty amazing. But Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter was walking on the water. Can he use us to do anything he wants to do through us? I mean, if he, Peter can walk on the water, do you think he can use us to serve him now? Do you think he could use us to do things that he wants us to do? He's already said, I want you to make disciples. I want you to lead people to Christ. I want you to train them, equip them. I want you to love one another. I want you to go into this community with the greatest message of all time. Can we do that? Will he empower us to do that? The answer is, of course. And look what happens though. But... Sometimes you see but, which is that contrast. But he was walking toward Jesus. He was looking at Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Seeing the wind. See, Peter sees the wind and and the violent wind. He took his eyes off Christ. Let me just say this. Anytime in life, anytime you take your eyes off Christ and you put it on your circumstances, you can always sink. Listen, when we go through life, if we keep the focus on Jesus Christ, we're going to be okay. But if we take the focus off our Savior and put them on our circumstances, anytime we take our eyes off Jesus Christ and look at the circumstances, we're going to be afraid. Peter was fine as long as he's walking to Jesus. He's going, this is amazing. And then he went, whew, that's a lot of wind. That's a lot of waves. This is a lot of bad stuff out here. What am I doing out here? And before you know it, he began to sink. And sometimes in life, that's what we do. And see, we can live in two ways. We can either live our lives looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We can keep the focus on our Lord. We can see him through the word of God, and we can live looking unto Jesus, or we can look at the circumstances. And if we do, it's always going to be fear. It's always going to be afraid. We're going to always be victims. See, I'm tired of victims. I'm tired of our whole country's victims. 
and we just sit there and, and we should say, I'm not a victim, I have the Savior, I'm created by the, the living God and he has given me eternal life and I'm going to keep my focus on Christ and not on my circumstances. I always tell this story. I had a, when I coached at Mississippi State, I coached track, and we had this young guy, he was from my hometown, Meridian, Mississippi, and we signed him to run track, and we knew he was pretty good, we didn't know how good he could be, and so we went to LSU for a track mate, and LSU, like Mississippi State, we had good track program, but we did not have any a facility that was any good, but when, when you go to LSU, they had this giant track and big scoreboards, and everything was lit up, and I mean, I walked in there, and I'd go, good gracious, what a track facility. You know, I said, well, I wish we had a track. So, so Evis is going to run for his first time outdoors. He's a freshman in college. And I said, he's going to run the 400 meters. And I said, okay, now, Evis, now remember, you, when you come out of that final curve, you got that long straightaway, you keep your focus on that finish line, and you run all the way through. Well, they shot the gun. Evis is really, he, he really was good that day. And he went around, and when he came out of that final curve, he looked over and saw that giant scoreboard stuff right there. And all the way in, this is how he ran, smiling. Now, he won, and he ran the fastest time in the world at that point. He was amazing. But I said, Evis, you might could have run faster if you'd look where you was going, you know, right? And so when we live our Christian lives, we have to keep our focus on Christ. If we put it on the circumstances, we're going to always mess up. But look what happened. But seeing the wind, verse 30, he became frightened. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me immediately. Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And see, that's what he could say to us every day. Why do you doubt me? Have I ever let you down? Has any promise Jesus ever made to us not come true? And will any promise that he ever makes not come? Everything he ever says is always true. And so he said, little faith, he wasn't trusting Jesus. He took his focus off Christ. And if we're going to live a successful Christian life, we've got to keep our focus on Christ. Well, we're going to see a third miracle. Are you ready? We've already seen two. Jesus walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. Look at verse 32. When they got into the boat, what happened? The wind stopped. The third miracle. It implies in the Greek, suddenly. That storm they've been in for nine hours trying to make it across, stuck out in the middle, wind blowing, because you just remember that Peter was just in the water and the wind, he saw the wind and the waves and he was all scared. As soon as Jesus got into the boat, what happened? Storm immediately stopped. We know there's another place in the scripture where Jesus was in the boat with the guys and he was actually in the back on a pillow asleep and they hit a big storm. They got all scared. They went back to him. Jesus was asleep and they woke him up and said, don't you care that we're going to perish? And he looked at him and he went, stop. And it just stopped. And see, here, he doesn't say anything. He gets into the boat, and what happens to the storm? It immediately stops. So how many miracles we got so far? Three. Now, there's another miracle, but it's not in Matthew. It's the same event. It's in the Gospel of John, and I, I, I'm going to put the, so we won't have, just because of time, I want you to see the fourth miracle. It's found. Uh, the, oh, oh I gotta, I gotta, we got to get this. The... Um, they worshipped him. Look at verse 33. And they, they, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, they knew who he was. They trusted him as Savior a long time ago. But when they saw this power to walk on water, to calm the storm, they worshipped him. But it's not over yet. John chapter 6, verse 21 says, 
So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. When he got into the boat and the storm stopped, suddenly they're at Gennesaret. They've been trying to get there for nine hours. They were halfway across. Immediately Jesus gets into the boat. They're now to the other side. It didn't say it took them, you know, 10 more minutes or an hour. No, immediately. The Greek word means at that exact moment they were at the other side. Immediately. Now, let's get to the other side. So they get to this place, and it's going to be a place called Gennesaret. And when they get there, now, by the way, we've already seen Jesus walked on the water, Peter walked on the water, calming the storm in the boat immediately at the shore. There's one more miracle, and it's verse 34. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, when they saw him, they knew who he was. They sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick and implored him. They were asking him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. The people who touched Jesus were cured. By the way, you know what his cloak was? A Jewish man especially an older Jewish man, and when I say older, a mature man, not a boy, had a, had a, a, a cloak that they would wear over, and it was like, uh, like a square, but square were the front and front and side and side, and there were tassels on the, two, on the front and the back and the sides, and they went down. Now, for the religious leaders, the bigger the tassel, the more spiritual you were. Jesus, we don't know what Jesus had on his, but he had a tassel. If you remember the story of the woman who had that bleeding for 12 years, and she came up behind Jesus, and she touched the tassel on the back, she was immediately healed. It says here, they said, please, they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his cloak. That's the tassel. And as many as touched it were cured. That's the five miracles. Jesus walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. They calmed the sea. Boat was immediately to the shore. Um, calmed the storm. I'm sorry. Yeah, beat, uh, boat immediately to the shore. And all who touched Jesus were healed. Jesus is our God. He's our Savior. He's the one we can come to. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always prays for us. We don't need to be people of little faith. We don't need to be people of fear. He is always there, and we can trust him, and he is the one who gives to us eternal life. Well, let me give you some applications. First one is just, let's realize that God is a God of miracles. He is. He walked in the water. He calmed the sea. He healed the people. He did all these things. So let's worship him. That was the response. They worshiped Jesus Christ. And what is our response to Jesus, to worship him? And let me just say this. How can you and I worship him? If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you can worship him as you respond to him and say, I believe that you are my Savior. I am trusting in you to give me eternal life. That can happen right where you're sitting. You don't have to do anything. You simply believe in him as your Savior, the one who gives to you eternal life. You can do that right now. For us who already know him as Savior, we can respond to his word. We worship him as we say, I want to live for you. I want to obey you. I want to take the word of God, and I want to live it out in my life. Let's take seriously the truths of the Bible. The second application is this. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and not our circumstances. It is so easy to look at the circumstances rather than our Savior. We need to keep the focus. As Hebrews says, let's run the race with endurance, keeping our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our lives. Listen, he is always, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that, he is always making 
intercession for us. No matter what the storm is, no matter what the trial is, keep your focus on Jesus. He's making intercession for us. He is always with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? Even the storms of life, he is always there. And finally, he is our protector and our power. He is our strength. He is our shield. We, we don't have to be afraid.